Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Good morning, everybody. Glad you are with us today in our online campus. We're a little different today because uh, the rest of the church that's meeting live today is meeting out in the parking lot. Um, But we wanted to make sure that you were able to hear the same message that they're going to hear today. And so we decided instead to go ahead and record it for you so that uh, you could meet with us and worship with us today. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate you being online with us today. Let's, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have. Help us to understand this beautiful word from the book of Ecclesiastes about life and significance, meaning, and satisfaction. And I pray you'd use it to speak into our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. I don't know if you knew this, but last Wednesday, NASA smashed a spaceship into an asteroid called Didymus. It's an asteroid, I think, something like six million miles from Earth. And it was really a test to see if uh, some massive asteroid asteroid that maybe is threatening to strike the earth someday and wipe out all life on the planet could somehow be manipulated or moved by crashing a spaceship into it and pushing it slightly out of its orbit. And I don't know if they got it fixed or how it came out. I haven't heard yet, but um, it's an interesting idea. Uh, And the whole concept of this idea of mass extinction and asteroids striking the Earth is somewhat terrifying to a lot of people. I mean, uh, scientists tell us that 65 million years ago, a massive asteroid smashed into the Yucatan Peninsula and wiped out most of life on the planet. Is that true? I don't know. Is it in the Bible? No. Why not? I don't know. You know, I think maybe God left us some puzzles and said, enjoy yourself and try to figure some of these things out. I don't think he spelled it out. All I know is that God has revealed to me all that I know for life and godliness. That doesn't mean that he's revealed to me everything. But all of that gets us thinking and in some cases worrying about could we get struck by an asteroid? And you see these movies from Hollywood like Armageddon and Deep Impact 2012, the most recent one, Don't Look Up, you know, and uh, we begin to worry and wonder, let me put your mind at ease, okay? This world is not going to be extinguished until Jesus comes back. And after that, I promise you, you won't care. But but it gets us thinking about our own terminality, our, our own terminal nature, right? Uh, The truth is, we may or may not face some mass extinction event, uh, but every single one of us is going to face an extinction. In fact, I would say that 50 years from now, most of the people listening to me right now will be gone. There's going to be a mass extinction event. And 100 years from now, everyone that can hear and comprehend what I'm saying, by all likelihood, It's going to be gone. So if you think about it in those terms, about every hundred years, there's a mass extinction event on this planet, and every one of us are gone. One wag said, nobody's going to get off this ball with their life. And he's right, because every one of us is going to have his own personal extinction moment, right? Every single one of us. And it got me to thinking, what would you do if you found out, you know, say the news comes out, there's some 
massive object going to strike the earth and it's going to wipe out however much population of the earth at a certain time. Say we got 30 years, say we've got 20 years, say, say it's 10 years or 50 years, or, or maybe it's just two or three years. And you get that kind of news. What do you do? I mean, honestly, how do you react? Uh, would you ignore it? Would you just like go all criminal and go anarchic and, you know, uh, go crazy in some Walmart? Uh, would you turn inward and become depressed and morose? Or maybe just try to run from it chemically and get stoned or high or start chasing women or men, whatever. Um, what would you do if you knew that there was a mass extinction event coming? Well, again, the bad news is there is a mass extinction event coming, and it's coming in your lifetime. Because by the time you end this life, you're going to be gone. And every one of us is facing a personal extinction event. And that's really the issue of Ecclesiastes. This guy takes a hard look at his own mortality. That's really what he's wrestling with. And he starts with that conclusion, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What is the point? What is the purpose of all this labor that we do? But the context is always under the sun. With my limited time, with my small, short life, how am I going to find meaning, significance, and purpose how, how am I going to find satisfaction? How will we ever be satisfied? You know, uh, uh, I said last time, you know, that famous theologian Mick Jagger sang that song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And if you look around our world today, that is really the mantra of the modern age. I can't get no satisfaction. Why? Because uh, we're looking at world from a, uh, the world from a strictly secular, naturalistic perspective. And if this is all we have and, and death's going to wipe all of that out, then what's really the point, you know? And how can anything ever possibly satisfy us after that? If we're all terminal, how can we ever be satisfied? And Solomon picks that up in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 12 through 26, and he really gives us a, a quick synopsis of his journey in his quest for satisfaction. And he, and he starts with knowledge. Uh, maybe knowledge will satisfy me. Uh, Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Verse 13, and I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. Notice again, the framework is always under heaven. The context is this earth. And in the context of this earth, he's, he's asking, is it possible to find lasting satisfaction, a life of meaning and significance on the earth without a concept of eternity? And he says, maybe the answer lies in knowledge and wisdom. Um, but here's what he comes away with, and there's no real surprises here. The first thing he says is that learning is grievous. Uh, verse 13, it is a grievous task which God has given the sons of men to be afflicted with. You see that? You're like, wait, what? This is Solomon saying this. Solomon was perhaps most famous for his brilliant mind, the wisdom of Solomon. 1 Kings 10, 24 says, People from every nation came to consult him and to hear the wisdom that God had given him. He was internationally known as, as a person of profound wisdom. And yet his takeaway from that is, it's an affliction and it's grievous. I mean, how, how does he come to that point? Because here's what I remember. Maybe you remember it too. Do you remember when they told us that education was going to fix everything? Maybe, maybe 
you can still remember that, that what people really needed most was just to get educated, right? And if we could just get everybody educated, then it's going to get rid of poverty. It's going to get rid of inequity. It's going to get rid of world hunger. Uh, it's going to cure cancer. It's going to stop global warming. It's going to put an end to racism. All these wonderful things that were going to happen if we could just get everybody educated. It's going to do all those things. But then it didn't. Why didn't education do what we had hoped it would do? Well, I think in part it turns out that the people that would benefit the most from education seem to be the least interested in it. Why were they uninterested in it? Well, because learning's hard work. Solomon called it grievous. Uh, and the, the Hebrew word there for grievous is literally bad. Uh, Academics are grievous. Learning is knowledge is bad. You know, and I can I can just hear the, you know, the seventh grade boy struggling in pre-algebra or something, going, see dad, see mom, I told you this stuff's terrible. And it really is. I mean, it's bad, it's hard. It's hard work to read a book. It's hard to study. It's hard to memorize formulas. Math is work. I think that's why they try to reinvent new ways to do math because I think they had this hope that if we could just make math easier somehow, then more people would be interested in it. But the more they try to monkey with it and make it easier, the more complicated it seems to to be. And now even the people who know math don't understand it anymore because the new math is so uh, obtuse and difficult to get at. At the end of the day, math's just hard. You got to memorize timetables. You got to be able to do uh, division and uh, all of that stuff. And it's just hard. Education's hard. It's grievous. And, and that's why education couldn't keep its promise because you can make a kid go to class, but you can't make him learn, right? Solomon used the word affliction. He says learning is a terrible thing to be afflicted with. And, you know, I mean, we feel that, don't we? And I can hear this kid going, Mom, I want you to listen to Bill because he agrees with me. I told you this is an affliction. I told you I shouldn't have to do all this stuff. Uh, and let me just say this. It's, uh, teachers, give me a second, okay? Let me, let me get up on my soapbox. Learning is hard. Please don't make it harder. Now stay with me now, okay? I need you to understand, I, I love teachers, Um, I appreciate teachers. I'm married to a teacher. My mom was a teacher. My dad was a professor. My grandmother was a teacher. My aunt was a school teacher. My uncle was a superintendent. Uh, Amy's parents were both teachers. Uh, My daughter-in-law is a teacher. My my, uh, son's fiance is a professor. I, I come from a broad sampling of teachers. I love teachers. But I got to say this, learning's hard enough. Don't make it harder. Please stop giving them so much homework. I mean, they're going two hours a night on homework, three hours a night on homework. You've, you've got seven to eight hours every day to afflict them. Afflict them all you want. But when you give them all that homework, you not only afflict them at home, but then you're starting to afflict the parents too because we've got to do the homework, right? And it was always frustrating to me because when I would do my son's homework, his grades would go down. So now not only am I afflicted, I'm conflicted. Uh, but there's no way around it. Learning is grievous. It's an affliction. That's why it's not the answer because those that need it the most won't do it. 
But second thing, more importantly, it won't change anything. I know we think it will, and I know we've been promised that. It'll give you probably a better opportunity at a higher paying job, and I I get that. Um, And I'm not denying that, and I'm certainly not speaking against the importance of education, but you have to realize education is not going to change a person down in its core. Solomon says exactly that in verse 14. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. Now look at verse 15, because this is why. He said, I'm looking at all this academics. I've been filled with wisdom. It's vanity and striving after the wind. And here's why. What is crooked cannot be straightened. You see that? And what is lacking cannot be counted. What's crooked, crooked can't be straightened. I mean, even if you educate someone, you haven't necessarily changed his life. You may have given him more opportunities to, to broaden his, uh, his awareness of things, or you may have somehow put him on a path of higher income or something like that. But at its core, down in who he really is, down in who she really is, you have not really changed anything. I mean, if you, if you educate a reprobate, then you're just creating a smarter reprobate. If you educate a barbarian, you've not changed the barbarian. You've just made the barbarian smarter. And education might increase his income and her opportunities, but it won't change their heart. And that's the problem. Education won't change a life because the problem is the heart, not the head. And that's what I think sometimes we forget. And I think that's what Solomon realized. What's crooked can't be straightened Because we're trying to straighten out the wrong part of the body. We're trying to straighten out the head instead of the heart. Only Jesus can change a heart. And we've got this heart problem. We've got a heart that's covered up in sin, a heart that's desperate uh, to to know its creator, a heart that longs for eternity, a heart that's never going to be satisfied. And so as long as you've got this craving heart, what one songwriter called a hungry heart, then your heart is never going to be at peace. And you're never going to know satisfaction, significance, and meaning. And there's no course in the world that can do that. Only Jesus can. The third thing is there's a limit to knowledge. He says what what is lacking can't be counted. You can't count what you don't have. And you, you, you don't know what you don't know. And the more you know, the more you realize what you don't know. Here, here's something. The more you learn, the more you learn that you need to learn more. The more you learn, the more you realize that you need to learn more. Because every philosophical system leads to a cul-de-sac. I don't care whose it is. I don't care how smart that guy is. Eventually, it's going to lead you into a dead end. And so when we buy into the rationalistic worldview and we follow that, um, we always wind up at a dead end. Now listen, it's better to be smart than dumb. Solomon's going to say that in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 13. We'll get to that next time. But even the greatest minds are limited, and eventually we come to the end of reason, and, and then rationalism becomes irrational. And if you don't think that's true, then you haven't looked around the world today. The brightest people in our world are saying the dumbest things. Romans 1.22, professing to be wise, they became fools. That's the problem with it. And so Solomon came to that same conclusion. Verse 16, I said to myself, look, I'm wiser than all the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom uh, to madness and folly. Now here it is. But I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. 
To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. So Solomon then wonders, well, maybe the answer isn't getting smarter. Maybe the answer is just enjoying pleasure. Maybe pursuing pleasure will satisfy me. That's where he goes next. He said, I said to myself, this chapter 2, verse 1, come now and I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself and behold, it too was futility. So he already says, I I tried this, it's futile too. I said of laughter, it's madness and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I mean, it sounds like the conclusion, but it's really the question, is there anything to this pleasure thing? That's where he starts out. And he began with drugs. Look at verse 3. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely. So before he gets stoned or high or smashed, he's got his brain working. He says, I'm going to test this drug thing out and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven for the few years of their life. In other words, I'm just going to allow myself to forget everything. Kind of check out. Timothy Leary stuff, you know, tune in, turn on, check out. And he realized quickly that that was futile. He moved on to materialism. I enlarged my works. I built my houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had homebound slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. I read read Market Watch, and uh, it, it was talking about the richest men in history, not the richest men of our time. And And these guys, these richest men in history make folks like Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Vladimir Putin look like lightweights. For example, did you know that Julius Caesar, adjusted for inflation, had a net worth of $4.6 trillion, Julius Caesar. And in the same market watch, and this isn't a Christian publication, they said King Solomon was worth $2.2 trillion, $2.2 trillion. That's $2,200 billion dollars. Put that in perspective, Jeff Bezos, I mean, Elon Musk has a net worth of $263 billion. Solomon's net worth was roughly 10 times greater than Elon Musk, who is currently the richest man in America. I mean, his his wealth was slightly smaller than the gross domestic product of Great Britain and slightly more than the gross domestic product of Texas. And here's the funny thing. What do you do with all that money? I mean, in Solomon's time, you've got $2.2 trillion. And I thought, what could he buy? But then I thought, what could he not buy? He couldn't buy a ticket on an airplane. He couldn't buy a cell phone. He couldn't call his mom from a, a, a ballpark. He couldn't even go to Walmart. They had no home shopping network. He couldn't stop by the Ferrari shop and buy the latest model of the month. I mean, with $2.2 trillion, what do you do with all that money? And so then you back away and you go, you know what? You got all this money, but you don't really have enough to spend it on. What do you do with it? So why do you have it? Maybe that's a question we could ask the super rich because at some point it stops being about need and it starts being about something else. It starts being about your identity and comparison and competition, right? What's the difference? What's the, what's the same thing about a guy with 1 billion and a guy with 10 billion? 
Here's, the, here's what they have in common. Both of them have more money than they'll ever be able to spend in their life. But what's the difference between a guy with $10 billion and a guy with $1 billion? Well, that's pretty obvious. The guy with $10 billion has more. And because he has more, he feels like he's more. And their significance is wrapped up not in what they have, but how much they have, and it becomes a comparative, competitive thing. And that's why you see this grotesque acquisition of wealth among the super rich. It's been going on since the days of Solomon. Even Solomon said that. Look at verse 9. Then I became great. Now look at this because there's a comparative analysis here. I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I had more than everybody. You feel it? You feel the comparison? The wealth was so great that he found his value in that. But even that becomes empty. And Solomon realizes, no matter how much I have, even if by comparison to another person, I'm the richest guy around, so what? I'm still going to die. And who's going to get all this money? I can't take it with me. So Solomon even explored uh, significance through pleasure. Uh, Verse 10, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all the labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. So Solomon falls into the same debauchery and self-indulgence that seems to be an inevitable feature of privilege. If you back up and read verse 8 again, it says, I provided for myself male and female singers and pleasures of men, Here he goes, many concubines. A couple of weeks ago, I said Solomon had 900 concubines. I misspoke. And I I don't need to do that. I need to check it first. I missed it by 100. He didn't have 900 concubines. Listen to 1 Kings 11.3. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. So he had a combined total of women in his harem of 1,000. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. A thousand women in his heart. I I mean, come on, man. Think of the absurdity of that. He probably couldn't even remember all their names. I certainly didn't have time to spend five minutes a week with any of them. And on the outside, everybody must have looked at those women. Think what it did to them. On the outside, it's like, oh, what a favored position. You're one of Solomon's 700 wives? I mean, wow. How awesome must it be to be the wife of King Solomon? But when you really scratch the surface and you get down into the heart of hearts of that woman, what was she really feeling? Because I can't help but think how empty and lonely that must have been. And those women were little more than human trafficking. They were bartered like objects to win the status of a powerful king. And so it becomes a really sick thing. And when Solomon finally stops all of this madness and what he calls folly. And he backs up and he really assesses his his excess. Look what he wrote, verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. It was all a big fat zero. So why are we talking about all this? What a downer, right? I think we're talking about it, I think, first of all, so that we will learn from his mistakes. 
a wise man once told me, he said, Bill, there's only two ways to learn in this life. You can learn from your mistakes or you can learn from the mistakes of other people. So let's learn from his mistake. If Solomon had access to all of these things that we assume would be satisfying, brilliant mind, steady stream of information, access to the leading information and the greatest minds in the world. And he says, that's vanity and chasing after the wind. It's grievous. Then we need to listen to that. If he had all of the wealth and the possessions that anybody could possibly want, $2.2 trillion more than anyone else. He's at the, he's at the pinnacle of financial success. And he says, it's vanity and striving after the wind. We need to listen to that. If he had a thousand women in his harem, assuming that the indulgence of these pleasures would somehow satisfy his life, we need to hear when he says, it's all vanity and striving after the wind. If Solomon couldn't find satisfaction in those things, then neither can we. And we got to learn from that. And here's what we learn. You're never going to find satisfaction under the sun. I mean, every one of us is headed for our own personal extinction event. We don't know when it is. It may be a month from now. It may be 40 years from now. It may be 60 years from now. We don't know. But if this life is all we have, then you'll never find satisfaction. You've got to look above that. You know, Jesus had an encounter with a woman at a well near Sychar. And he came up and he, when she walked up, she came at noon, not when women normally would come. She was a Samaritan woman. Jesus said, could you give me something to drink? And she was surprised. How are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? And he said, woman, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. Because the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. And he began to share with her living water. And in that conversation, we discover that she had been married five times and she was living with the guy. So clearly this is a thirsty woman. This is a woman who, like Mick Jagger, couldn't get no satisfaction. Nothing was going to satisfy her until she finds Jesus. And he says, I'm the one. And you know, the same thing he, he said to her, he says to us, when he was talking to a crowd in John 6, he'd fed them 5,000 with five loaves and two fish the day before, and now he's giving the bread of life sermon. He says, he says, I'm the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He says, if you eat of me, you will never hunger again. Why? Because he can satisfy you. You know, you may be going through life constantly craving, and you've tried everything. You've tried pleasure. You've tried chasing money. You've tried chasing notoriety. You've tried it all. And you're trying to find what can't be found under heaven. You got to look up and you got to let Jesus be what Jesus wants to be in your life. You see, here's what he said. I alone can satisfy you. I'm not of this earth. I'm not chained to this ball. And with me, there's no extinction event. And I can satisfy your longing. I can satisfy your longing for forgiveness because I died on the cross to forgive you. I can satisfy your longing for holiness and purity 
because I'm going to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And I can satisfy your need for purpose because I can set you on a path of a meaningful and significant and purposeful life. And I can satisfy the longing for eternity that I've put in every heart. And He wants to do that in you right now. But you've got to open your heart to Him. In this life, Solomon's right, you'll never find satisfaction until you find it in Him. You ready to do that? Let's pray together. God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank you that he alone satisfies. He's the living water. He's the bread of life. Let us learn from Solomon in the emptiness of his life and help us not to make the same mistakes. And so, Father, those that need Christ right now, I pray they would turn to you right where they are, in their living room, their kitchen, their bedroom, sitting in their car, and they would just say, Jesus, I come to you. I give you my life. Fill me with satisfaction and we'll worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.